Okay, so we are back to another Down the Hatch podcast. And if you all recall, last year we had a uh, swallowing physiology series, and we talked at the time about the basic events of swallowing. So we talked about oral propulsion, swallow trigger, laryngovascular closure, etc. And at some point this year, or maybe it was last year, Alicia had the great idea to suggest that we do it again, except focus a little bit more on the control systems of swallowing. So that would be things like the brain, especially peripheral nervous system, central nervous system. And this is the first in that series. We will eventually get to broader topics like neuroplasticity, motor learning, biofeedback, motor control, etc. But we wanted to start out today with talking about the basics, the general concepts associated with how swallowing is controlled. And partly it's because it's really easy for many of us who were trained in speech pathology to know what the structures are, know what the cranial nerves are, and then it's like these cranial nerves just go off into this distant land and don't quite connect to anything. And while we know that swallowing has to happen because of neural control from the brain, we don't always understand how that happens normally and we don't always understand what the rehabilitation implications are. So today we're gonna talk about some broad concepts in normal swallowing control, such as the CNS versus the PNS, laterality, um, bottom-up versus top-down controls, the brainstem, sensory versus motor, central pattern generators, and what any of this might mean for decisions you make every day as a speech pathologist in rehab for swallowing. Um, so I thought that what I do is start out by just talking generally about the central nervous system versus the peripheral nervous system and giving them very, the very broad definitions that I'm sure everybody's aware of. Um, but before I do that, I just wondered if Alicia, if you have anything else to add to the introduction in terms of why we wanted to talk about this. Yeah, I guess I'll just add in that. Um, if you're worried that this is going to feel instructional, fear not. Um, we are not deviating from our usual platform of this podcast, which is that it's unscripted and we really don't know what we're going to talk about other than we just decided that uh, neural control of swallowing was an interesting topic and um, we both feel pretty passionate about um, getting into the nitty gritty about some of those topics. So. If you're interested in more of an instructional um, basis for this talk, then we're going to post some articles that are recommended reading before the talk. This isn't meant to just regurgitate information that's already out there. It's more to just theorize about um, what any of these um, topics can mean for rehab and what we personally just find interesting and and unique about swallowing and what's kind of fun to talk about. So um, we're going to start in one place and who knows where where we will end up um, and just enjoy some nerding out. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I do think there are going to be a lot of people like, oh, I love the brain so much and hopefully they'll be sticking with us toward the end. Um, But let me start out with some broad definitions about central nervous system versus peripheral nervous system. Uh, The central nervous system is comprised of the brain and spinal cord. Uh, The central nervous system is the place where neurons have cell bodies, Um, whereas the peripheral nervous system are going to be primarily the axons that extend into the periphery outside of the central nervous system to various locations. It might be organs, it might be muscles. It also includes the cranial the cranial nerves and spinal nerves that begin in the periphery in terms of uh, where they're taking information and from, such as receptors, and then extend to the central nervous system so that we have a sense of what's going on in our world. Um, So that's the broad definition of how the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system are different. As I mentioned before, in our training, we focus a lot on the um, final end organ or termination point, which are going to be the muscles, and the cranial nerves that move to the brainstem or to the spine, but we don't really go too far beyond that. We may have taken a course in neuroanatomy and neurophysiology, but few of those courses actually talk about the neuroanatomy and neurophysiology of swallowing 
And that's often because we're still figuring it out. Some of the earliest studies uh, where we studied normal swallowing in healthy people really only date back to the 80s and 90s. So uh, for that reason, um, that's partly why we didn't get a lot of this information. Anything to add there? Yeah, I think that it's nice to start with the delineating between the peripheral and central nervous system because really when you, you know, so the interesting thing about swallowing is that when patients have dysphagia, it's a symptom of a underlying other disease. And I think one of the first things you have to ask yourself is where are where are we targeting rehabilitation? So is the deficit within the muscle or peripheral nervous system, or is this more of a central disorder? Because the way that we target rehab and the way we think about neuroplasticity is going to be quite different um, depending on where the deficit is. So just to give an easy example is if somebody has any type of surgery, say they have a thyroidectomy and they completely sever the vagus nerve. Or if you have a suboccipital craniotomy and they sever the trigeminal nerve, that's going to be a very different rehab approach than somebody that's had a cortical stroke. Um, would you agree with that? That's I would sort agree of the with first that. place to start is to yeah. think about where is the injury? Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. And the analogy that I recall giving you a while back when uh, you were a brand new doctoral student and it's not that you didn't know this information, it's just that I thought it would work well in a talk you were giving was the lamp example. I don't know if you remember that. Mm -hmm. I sure do. But basically, you were giving a talk about brainstem function of swallowing. And I wanted, and I say this to my class a lot, I want them to understand what it means when you approach a patient and you're trying to understand where the problem is. Now, obviously, if somebody was totally fine, they have a surgery, in the peripheral region and the the indication is that a nerve was severed versus this person has had an MRI and there's obviously a stroke, you already know basically what the issue, what where the um, original problem is, right? But it's still important to be able to approach a patient and think about how to troubleshoot. So if you walk in a room and there's a lamp that's supposed to turn on, you hit the switch and nothing happens. Usually the first people do is the first thing people do is mess with the bulb because the bulb is often the part that goes bad first, right? So we constantly buy bulbs because we know they're going to blow at any time. But if you go and get a bulb, let's think of the bulb as the muscle, if you will. Uh, if you go and get a bulb and you get a new one and you plug it into a different lamp and it works, but the lamp that didn't work originally, that bulb isn't going, you go, oh, it's not the bulb, it, maybe it's the cord. So think of the cord as the cranial nerve. It's a thing that connects the actual muscle to the control system in the wall. So that would be something that obviously if you cut that nerve, it doesn't matter what's happening in the lamp. The lamp is not getting any any electrical um, any electricity from the wall. But of course, we know the control panel within the wall actually controls many different outlets in our house. So that you can think of that as a central nervous system. So when you think about how much farther away from the bulb you're getting, you already know that the control system is even bigger. Then you can go to the grid. So you can get so far away from the bulb that you realize the level of control is so big and complicated and that it's a network type situation that a stroke is going to impact networks that impact swallowing. So you can get far bigger range of problems. Whereas with just the cord itself going to the lamp, you know it's just gonna affect that one particular lamp. It's not gonna affect the TV and the microwave because it's just the cranial nerve or the the cord that goes to that specific lamp as you get closer and closer to the structures. Yeah, so with, in using that analogy, all I can think of, because obviously my brain goes to central pattern generators already, that the central <laughs> pattern generator for swallowing in that analogy is like the program that programs those holiday lights that like have a certain pattern to music that they um you know they they um what's that that orchestra you you see this all over during the holidays hallelujah the, hallelujah no, the, the lights the, the lights are flashing to a beat yeah like to jingle bell rock yeah and there's like a very to, to make it look good there has to be very specific timing and patterning and coordination for it to match with the song yeah um because you know it, the light 
in an analogy to swallowing, it's not just on and off, right? Sure. It's, there's a certain pattern and timing associated with it. So it just makes me think of the Christmas lights that have, So I'm glad you said that because what you've done is, well, first let's do this. Let's assume people, we've already talked about last year in the swallowing physiology series, we talked about the muscles and we talked about the nerves, okay? We, but what you've done is you've taken us to sort of the first level of brainstem, cranial nerve, nuclei, um, by saying central pattern generator, central pattern generators, but we haven't defined it. So do you mind defining central pattern generator? Sure. So, I mean, globally, so the central pattern generator is not unique to swallowing. There are central pattern generators that are present for different types of um, rhythmic motor um, outputs such as walking and swimming and chewing and breathing and swallowing. And they're really just neural circuits. So one thing that drives me crazy about the central pattern generator in swallowing is that people sort of talk about it like it's this anatomical localization. Like this is the area, this is the central pattern generator. And that's not really what it is. It's a neural circuit and um, it's composed of different types of interneurons that are responsible for integrating sensory and motor information. And to define it, it's really just a, a circuit that produces a rhythmic output. So swallowing would be in that umbrella in the absence of a rhythmic input. So the way they always define central pattern generators is that they can, there can be a rhythmic stereotyped motor behavior without necessitating sensory input. Now it's it's kind of confusing, I feel like that definition because it implies that sensory input isn't um doesn't matter and it it absolutely matters. All they're saying is that when they do these basic science experiments, if you actually cut off the sensory input to the neural network, you can actually still get an output and a programmed response. The sensory input isn't necessary to initiate it, but we all know, especially in swallowing, that sensory input highly modulates the central pattern generator to get accurate timing and, and coordination um, information to get a to get a programmed motor output that um, that we see that's so beautiful when you look at swallowing and you look at a sequential swallow. The sensory information feeding into that central pattern generator is, is critical. Um, mm -hmm. So if you look at the if you look up a like on the internet a definition of a CPG I think it can be a, a little bit misleading mm -hmm. um, so, by a true basic definition. Right. So what I like to say to people when I'm trying to explain this because I mean that was obviously the classical definition. It's about a stereotyped slash rhythmic response, right? So walking is rhythmic, chewing is rhythmic, or stereotyped, meaning the cascade of events are very, are stereotypical, sequential. It can be a sneeze, it can be a gag, it can be a cough, it can be a swallow when you think of the cascade of events that are going to happen. But if you think of a piano that is um, going in a very rhythmic way, it's because somebody's hitting it in a rhythmic way. You're hitting the keys rhythmically. Very sort of like um, uh, percussion mechanical. If you're not hitting it in a rhythmic way, it's not producing anything in a rhythmic way. And what she's saying is that we don't have a, uh, when we walk, we don't have these sensory inputs of the floor hitting our foot every time that's making everything happen. So think of a knee-jerk response. You're, the reason you have a reflexive knee-jerk response is because some the physician or whoever has hit your patellar tendon, it stretches, and then you get the, the motor response. If you hit it rhythmically, of course, we know that these reflexes extinguish, but if you could hit it rhythmically, you would get a knee-jerk every time. But what if your knee jerk was happening just because you hit it once because you that wouldn't happen unless you had a central pattern generator in your central nervous system that if you stimulate it once, it triggers this network of activity that causes a rhythmic outcome. Um, so that's that's what the difference is with central pattern generators and the purpose of them is so that we don't have to think about every single step we take. Every time we breathe, every time we swallow, we don't go, come on, larynx, do your thing. Come on, UES, you're next. Go, pharynx. It happens sequentially so that we can just live, right? Especially, that's why it's considered an insult if somebody says, you're so dumb, you can't walk and chew gum. Because these are like 
background activities that we should be able to have happening rhythmically so we can actually have a conversation so that we can drive a car and chew some gum and make those more executive level decisions. So that's that's the way to think about central pattern generators. And there's another thing you said, which is interneurons, which I'm not sure everybody understands, but um, I don't go ahead and define that because they're really important here. Yeah, so interneurons are really a specialized neurons that transmit impulses, I guess, from sensory neurons to um, motor neurons. So they're, it's kind of like they're an um, intermediary, I guess you would say, between the sensory information is coming into the brainstem. And we can talk about, we'll get into where that information goes and centers within the brainstem. And then you have different nuclei in the brainstem that receive that sensory information to generate a motor output. And the interneurons are, are, in, are the neurons that are kind of relay that information in between. And it's that network of interneurons that are responsible for the timing and patterning and um, of that programmed response. So, I mean, if you think about it in swallowing, let's take it out in, in that context, is that the type of sensory information that you're getting, think about if you put a liquid in your mouth, if you put a grape in your mouth or spaghetti, it's very different types of sensory information that's being fed into the brainstem. And the interneurons in that central pattern generator are going to be responsible for collectively providing that information in order to, to generate that programmed response that's based on what's modulated by the sensory information. And it's especially important is interneurons exist exclusively within the central nervous system. Yep. So think about cranial nerves that we have talked about. They go from the peripheral nervous system to the central nervous system or from the central nervous system to the peripheral nervous system, depending on whether or not they're sensory or motor. And so that's why they can be impacted by trauma, right? Um, not that interneurons can, like if you get a, a head injury, obviously, but interneurons begin and end within the central nervous system. So that's why they have such a higher level function relative to cranial nerves that seem to be just execute, uh, executing the final program that was sent to them or sending information up and saying, hey brain, hey brain, this is what I felt on my tongue. Do something with this information. It says, yep. hey interneurons, I'm sending you this information. This bolus is cold and small. What are we gonna plan here? And the interneurons then say, okay, let me take this information from the sensory information that I just got from the periphery, the cranial nerve, I know, trigeminal, and within these nuclei that are filled with them, we're then going to send, okay, this is the pattern response that I want to go down to these muscles with this amount of timing and this amount of force and in this particular order. Um, and then that then leaves the central nervous system. These are the, now the motor cranial nerves that then go down to these muscles. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about a patterned response. And I think the best example I can give, because I think that's kind of a confusing term when we're talking about you know, in the context of neurology, like, what do we mean by a patterned response? Well, I, I think of it as like, sometimes I think it's better understood in locomotion because it's something that we can see. So take, for example, running. Well, when you're running the, the kinematics, you're using all of the same, um, you know, limbs. And it's, it's basically the same thing if you're running or walking or doing a trot or if you're skipping, but it's very different patterns based on what you're doing to, to jog versus sprint versus run versus gallop. Like all of these things are, you're putting one foot in front of the other and moving forward, but the pattern of what you're doing is very, very different. And mm -hmm. that's where I think you can really see the central pattern generator in motion is that it generates these beautiful patterned responses that are very rhythmic, but can be very different. Right. And we know that when it comes to swallowing sequentially uh, versus swallowing a discrete bolus amount, it's not that the swallow is so completely different. It just modulates based on the circumstance that it's given. It's given the sensory information required to do 
uh, a sequential swallow, but it doesn't mean that the UES is not going to happen. The UES or the larynx is not going to happen or pharynx is not going to happen in normal people. It just means that it modulates depending on the pattern that it needs for that bolus. So the central pattern generator can plan patterns, but those patterns can change. Um, and there is probably the situation where you can have paisley or houndstooth if we're talking about things that don't overlap at all, right? So locomotion is in the spine, the central pattern generator, whereas swallowing is in the brainstem. So they're not going to overlap. But since uh, your postdoc has been in breathing and swallowing, or primarily breathing, actually, can you talk more about central pattern generators where there's overlapping structures and the extent to which they can or can't happen together? For instance, we can breathe, then swallow, then pick up breathing again. Uh, we generally can't be coughing and swallowing at the same time. But the interesting thing is many of these structures overlap, like you can't gag and swallow at the same time. So there's a central pattern generator for the sequence of pushing something out of your system if you're gagging. Um, but there's also a central pattern generator for bringing something into your system if you're not. And the interesting thing to me that a lot of lay people ask me, which is great, is how come I can't swallow this pill? Why does it make me gag? And it's like, well, your body seems to think that that is something it needs to repel. So it is eliciting the central pattern generator to get rid of it instead of the central pattern generator to ingest it. And I think that that's one of the most interesting thing about these is that same structures, same neural network, different outcome. Yeah, so I think that what's interesting about science is that so you have people that study respiratory, you have people that study swallowing, and, and not very often do they come together and realize that sometimes they're calling different structures different things, but they're actually talking about the same thing. Um, so in respiration, for example, there's a, within the central pattern generator, there's a an area of the brainstem that they've, they've defined this much better in the respiratory system than they have in swallowing that there is a um, area of neurons in the pre-Butzinger complex, which is a part of the brainstem um, that generates an inspiratory rhythm. And then there's a different portion of the brainstem in the rostral, rostral ventral respiratory group that generates a expiratory rhythm. And it's really interesting that these pools of neurons and interneurons are so anatomically close to the central pattern generators for swallowing. And what they think is that these areas overlap quite remarkably in that some may be excitatory for one act and some may be inhibitory for another. So maybe it's the same set of neurons that are active for both swallowing and for respiration that helps to allow that really tight coupling and coordination of respiration and swallowing um, that maybe isn't so anatomically different, but there's a lot of overlap there. Um, so was that what you were asking? Yeah, every time I hear pre-Butzinger, I always think about flux capacitator from um, back to the future. I'm always like, that's very scientific. Uh, so I, I, yes. So the idea is that you have all, it's, it's sort of like if you have the lights, your Christmas lights example, which I love, you can't be playing Jingle Bell Rock and, um, up on the housetop. Boy, that was a very obscure Christmas song at the same time, right? Like, do they have, do they share the same musical notes? Sure. Are they going to share a lot of the red and green lights? Sure. But you have to choose one than the other. They can't play at the same time because these two songs compete with one another. And in the same way that coughing and swallowing doesn't happen at the same time, but can often use the same structures, they compete with one another. And there is some suggestion that perhaps when people have a lot of these neural issues, uh, that perhaps these neural networks aren't actually executing one behavior properly relative to another. That yeah. may or may not be that that is for us to tease out of the bedside because we know that we're supposed to be looking at overlapping behaviors and we do it. We do it all the time at the bedside. We have them. Some people will have a patient gag. We have them swallow. We have them cough. We have them do a Valsalva, which is sort of like a, uh, a bearing down type movement. And we're testing the same structure, but we're trying to understand whether or not the neural control of one is is OK, whereas the other one isn't. So, for instance, if somebody 
cannot produce a swallow, but they can cough and they can gag and they can do all these other things, then that suggests to you that the central pattern generator of one thing for those same structures, the neural networks are intact, but for the other ones that they're perhaps not. Yeah, so it's interesting. So what's different about re the respiration and the control of breathing is that so respiration is more or less continuous, right? Like you're always breathing, you're not always swallowing. So what it's been proposed in the literature is that elements of the respiratory CPG are actually just reconfigured during a swallow to participate in swallow generation. Um, I mean, it's a pretty simple solution to a really complex problem, and that's it's definitely going to be more complicated than that. But it makes sense if you're if you think of it that way that these respiratory neurons, um, you know, kind of become dormant to ensure that bolus movement related aspects of a swallow are reliably coordinated with that swallow related changes in breathing. So it's mm -hmm. kind of like they become active and inactive depending on what the task is since mm -hmm. swallowing is an elicited behavior. It's not like we just swallow spontaneously without knowing like breathing. it. Right? it has to be elicited. Yeah, we have to, it has to be elic elicited somehow. Um, which is why I say, you know, the sensory aspect of swallowing in triggering that central pattern generator is probably more relevant in swallowing than than many other um, tasks. I would say in, you know, in walking, it's it's much more of a volitional control until you actually start getting into a pattern, then um, it's automatic. Yeah, exactly. You are um, so bringing you have, go ahead. Sorry. I was just gonna say, like, perhaps we should just kind of maybe walk through from like, you know, the oral cavity up into the brainstem and just kind of take a little walk through, um, you know, starting with the types of like, mechanical chemoreceptors that are elicited and then take a sure. journey along the cranial nerves. And sure, sure. Let's and, and then I was going to say what you were doing is setting us up nicely for the question about is swallowing a reflex? What is a reflex? Because when you talk about elicitation, but sure, let's start with uh, some basic information in the oral cavity. So before we get to the oral cavity, the thing is we know what we're bringing to our mouths, right? With this is not a blindfold taste test about Pepsi versus Coke. We, and even then you know that you're taking it thin liquids through a cup. So think about it this way, which is we know cortically that when you decide that I'm gonna take this glass of deep, dark, red blend wine and pick it up, I know what I'm expecting. I'm expecting the mode of delivery. I'm expecting that it's gonna be thin liquid. I'm expecting a particular taste and a particular temperature. And I'm already organizing my oral cavity to receive that bolus without spilling it or without it spilling to the posterior. So that's a part that we often forget about, that's sort of kind of OT land, but let's then jump to when the bolus is actually in your oral cavity. One, you're confirming that what you thought was gonna come to your oral cavity is actually there. That's what I expected and that's what I got, right? Because then your plan would change. Like I usually say, if you, bring, if you think you're bringing a meatball to your mouth and it's actually a spoonful of of peas, your plan has to change immediately because your plan with the meatball was to break it down to make it swallowable. But if it's suddenly peas, now your plan is to make it cohesive. So we always have a plan as we bring the food to our mouth, right? So let's say it's in your oral cavity, then we are thinking about sensory cranial nerves uh, that are going to tell the brainstem, hey, this is what we got going here. Um, and for the most part, it's the mandibular and maxillary branch of the trigeminal nerve. Um, for a hard palate, soft palate, cheeks, tongue, etc. But we know in the back of our tongue, that's glossopharyngeal, um, and etc. Thoughts? That's what's going up to the pons, primarily because the pons is going to be the trigeminal sensory nucleus for a lot of the information coming to our oral cavity, which is why it's so big. Yeah, exactly. And I think for a more in-depth into um, the oral cavity. We we did a podcast on um, on this with Katrina Steele mm -hmm. um, last year. So if you're really interested in like um, oral sensory processing and the oral phase of swallowing, I would say refer to that. But yeah, absolutely. So um, you know the trigeminal nerve is is hugely important. I mean, if you look at the brainstem the sensory trigeminal nerve nuclei are the largest of the cranial nerve nuclei. It extends mm -hmm. the pole, the midbrain, the pons, the medulla, and into the high cervical spinal cord. Yep. Um, and that makes sense, right? Because it's processing 
so much sensory information that it makes sense that it would be represented so predominantly in the brainstem. Um, right. And and for your face. So it's not while you're chewing, you know sure. what's going on. And also it's general sensation, which we did talk about before. And there are so many different kind of receptors for general sensation, which just to recap means these are sensations you can feel around your whole body. There's not a special specialized kind of receptor that only takes it in. Like with taste, you have chemoreceptors that you can only experience primarily on your tongue, some soft palate, some epiglottis. But for general sensation in the oral cavity, we're talking about pressure, touch for mechanoreceptors. We have, uh, we have thermal receptors. We have nociception for pain. Um, what am I forgetting? We have, what else? Yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think you've covered and it. And you have a lot of them, which is why if you, uh, you know, a lot of time people think about the homunculus man. And for both sensory and motor, the mouth and the hands are huge because it's a topographic or a map representation of where the most um, neurons are coming from or going to. And your hands and your mouth get the most. But your your tongue gets even more because we know that we can do all kinds of sensory tests and the tongue is very sensitive to fine particulate so that we don't choke on stuff. We want to be able to differentiate a grain of rice from a kernel of corn so we know should i chew this up should i send it down as it is and we can actually do that because our oral cavity has such fine-tuned um rich diverse uh sensation yeah and i think you know i guess i'll just put a plug in now that i think that we're look i think in speech pathology we're sort of looking at the wrong thing when it comes to cranial nerves a little bit because is it important to know your cranial nerves Yes, absolutely. But I think I would argue it's more important to know where are those cranial nerves going? Like where mm-hmm. in the brainstem, what, which nuclei are you testing, right? Because take, for example, so if you're looking at general sensation in the oral cavity, you're talking about the trigeminal sensory nucleus, right? That's where that information is processed. Um, but if you're looking at taste, which is the anterior two thirds of the tongue by the facial nerve, that actually is processed in the NTS. That's not, right. it's quite. Pri- say what the NTS is. <laughs> Nucleus so tractus N- solitarius. Yeah, so we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> we tend to get ahead of ourselves sometimes. But um, yeah, it's so sometimes it's not about what cranial nerves you're testing, it's what, what cranial nerve nuclei you're testing. Um, and that's important to consider when you're. Um, when you're taking these uh, factors into consideration. So anyways, moving, moving more uh, posterior into the oral cavity and getting into how is a swallow initiated? What is actually happening for that? You know, the CPGs are kind of sitting there waiting, ready to go. So what's the information that's fed that um, gives them the information that they need? Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about this whole issue where, I'll not forget when somebody, and this still happens, people go, what do you say to people who say that swallowing is a reflex? And they're expecting me to go answer that question, like, what do you say to people when they say women are inferior? And they expect me to, like, blow up and get all excited. I'm like, granted, I don't think women are inferior, but I'm also looking at them like uh, swallowing actually fulfills a classic definition of a reflex. And then I'll say, well, what's a reflex? And then it's blank stare. Well, (laughs) there are some things that you actually have to have for it to be reflex. One is you need a sensory stimulus to initiate it. And we'll talk more about this when we do bottom up, top down. But um, when you think about walking um, or chewing, could you chew air? I mean, don't actors pretend they're chewing all the time? You know who's the king of this? Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt is always chewing something when he's in yeah. a movie. Always chewing something. And sometimes we're like, is there anything there? Or is this is this CPG fucked up? Oops, sorry. Or in, is this uh, C- <laughs> in seven. Did you just apologize for swearing? That I did. Weird. And that's because I haven't had enough of my, my red blend. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, really, uh, it's it's one of those things where you can pretend to chew. And you can just chew air. The CPG will get, will do it. It's not a reflexive chewing. And in fact, if you see a patient at the bedside who is reflexively sucking and chewing, you think they have a neurological issue as an adult. So infants have a rooting reflex. They have a sucking reflex. They have a biting reflex because they need these basic things to survive and they extinguish at a certain um, months post birth. 
they should extinguish. That's because you don't want everything that crosses your oral peri or area to cause you to root for it. So essentially, these are the swallow, however, needs a reflex. What would happen if just breathing in caused a, a swallow every time? You would die because you would just keep shutting off your airway. So you actually require a sensory stimulus. So that's one big part of what a reflex requires. The other thing is that it then triggers a stereotypical cascade of events. It might be uh, uh, simple, like a knee jerk, where just a couple of muscles are involved, or it could be complex like a swallow. So that's a complex reflex. But the issue is once that cascade begins, it's either difficult to stop or to modify. It doesn't mean that just because you can modify something, it doesn't mean that it's not a reflex. So those are some of the basic definitions of reflex. Now, there's nothing wrong with knowing your science and saying, yeah, that's what we actually deal with a reflex. Do you think other people are apologizing for it? People who study like saccades of the eye or it's whatever it is, they're not apologizing for um it being a reflex. So I think what happened is this whole idea of swallowing that a reflex got passed down and nobody knows why they're fighting against this idea because they ultimately don't realize it is a reflex and that's okay. It doesn't mean we can't modify it because it's complicated and it's connected to the cortex, which can modify it. Otherwise we couldn't do Mendelssohn's. We couldn't do effortfuls. You can modify a knee jerk. This is why physicians often try to distract you before they hit your patellar tendon. So you don't sort of inhibit it with your cortex. Right. Whoa, that's a soapbox of yours. I'm sorry. Quickly. I got really, I got really <laughs> upset. I got really upset. <laughs> it's like, okay. You're like, damn, girl, I just asked you where your bathroom is. And now you're like, why are people pooping? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. So how is the swallow initiated now that we've, we've just gotten that all out in the air? <laughs> so um, I would say they need to refer to the swallow trigger <laughs> podcast where we talk about it for an hour in terms of just how it's initiated. But I think what you want to do is get into oh, the true. loop, right? The sensory. Yeah, let's just, get, let's the just get to the brain. Let's just yeah. get to the brain. Let's just, I mean, we can, let's take the road. Sure. Okay. So obviously sensory information has to be sent via the cranial nerves to the brainstem and a primary sensory area is what Alicia mentioned. Two primary sensory areas include the trigeminal sensory nucleus, nuclei and the nucleus tractus solitarius which is in the medulla and these areas these are a, a concentration of neurons that take in that specialized sensory information and they're involved in other tasks not just swallowing but they can specialize obviously in swallowing to take this information in um, and there are many other uh, groups and you always forget the dorsal swallowing groups so yeah so basically so when we talk about the dorsal swallowing group, that's really like that's within the nucleus tractus solitarius, the NTS. Um, and what's interesting is that we talk about like the, the modulation, right? So the modulation from the cortex and, and all the sensory information, they all have direct access to the NTS. And it's the, the dorsal swallowing group that contains this, those swallowing generator neurons that are responsible for the triggering and the shaping and the timing of the swallowing motor pattern. And it's really the, that dorsal swallowing group, I would say, I would argue is, is really like the most important because that's, those are the neurons that are going to send the information to the ventral swallowing group and the nucleus ambiguous that's going to um, send out that, that motor output. So mm -hmm. I sort of think of the nucleus ambiguous and the ventral swallowing group as like the receivers, mm -hmm. right? Like they're just, they're receiving the information. Um, they're receiving the plan. Everything's been worked out. They get the plan and they execute it, right? Yeah. So it's really the, the dorsal swallowing group that's really um, providing that triggering, shaping, patterning um, information, those interneurons that, that are just so critical to get that nice programmed response. If you, if you want to see, to me, if you want to see a really great picture, maybe we can post it. There's an article by Andre Jean, um, in 2001. Oh my God, this love right. affair you have with Andre Jean. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. How did we get this far without saying that? Um, but it, what it does is it, what they did is they, um, put, uh, fine wire EMG into all the different muscles and swallowing, and they recorded EMGs, and when the swallow was initiated, they show just the um, 
the programmed response. So you can see that first initiated is the mylohyoid, like the leading complex of so the mylohyoid, the geniohyoid, the pallidopharyngeals, the posterior tongue, superior constrictor. And you can see this is beautiful pattern of EMG that moves down through the esophagus and swallow after swallow after swallow. It's the same program of these um, muscles that are being um, that are contracting at just the, the timing of it is just so miraculous to me that um, I mean, and we're talking about like millisecond differences in, in the timing of these muscles. And we know that the, the, if the timing is off by just a few milliseconds, that's when we see timing problems in our patients, right? So that, that program is so important to avoid because you can have the muscles can be perfect the peripheral nerves can be perfect but if that program is off and that timing is off you're going to see a dysfunctional swallow are you talking about don't you mean Dodi and bosma from 1956 they're the original ones that did that paper that study i thought yeah so the john paper is a review paper that summarizes oh, sure. yeah that summarizes all that work done in the 50s sure um, sure and, you know, what's interesting is you can actually go back to Meltzer, who published this back in, I think it was 1889, mm -hmm. um, where he he's the one that sort of was the first to theorize that swallowing had a central pattern generator. Um, yep, it was Meltzer, 1899. Wow. Um, At a party just, like it's 1899, Leash, you're really geeking out over there. I know. I <laughs> just pulled it up on my computer I just found a little like screenshot of it and it it reads it is now generally assumed that the orderly progress of the peristalsis in the pharynx is exclusively of central origin this means that the first afferent impulse which is conveyed from the periphery to the center of deglutition and which causes the coordinate contraction of the mylohyoid pharyngeal and laryngeal groups of muscles travels further within the center through several groups of ganglia why do you sound like you're trying to have an English accent? Do you just assume I don't know. that Meltzer is... That's how everybody talks in 1899. <laughs> a lighthearted lad. Um, okay, so yes, uh, we know that that, that those cascade... So you, you started with the mylohyoid, and you know, a lot of people know that when we measure swallowing and video fluoroscopy, we start out with the hyoid bone. It is the central pattern generator that determined this, that the first thing that we're, that's going to happen is that these muscles attached to the hyoid bone are going to go first. And that's why ultimately the bone that moves because of those muscles, because the, of the cranial nerves, and then because of the nucleus ambiguous and because of the NTS, so I'm going back up into the brain and back down, um, is what decided that. But there's a question I have for you, Leash, based on something you said. When you talked about these central, uh, sorry, these sensory brainstem nuclei that are deciding, hey, this is the information I have about what's going on out there. Can you please pattern something that makes sense? That ultimately is what's happening when we test different bolus types. Mm -hmm. And this is what people I think need to understand is this is not a black box. This yep. The brain doesn't have to be the black box that we think it is. We don't throw something in and say, well, this comes out all the time, therefore, and just ignore what happens in between. You give somebody at the bedside or on fees or on fluoro a bolus, a 5 ml teaspoon of thin liquid, right? And then something happens that you observe. It is that information that's going up through the cranial nerve, through the sensory receptors, cranial nerves, brainstem nuclei, cortex. We can't forget the cortex is monitoring what's going on and inhibiting certain things and interacting or, or, or uh, facilitating certain things. And then all this information is patterned back down and we see a response. Maybe it is a visual thing that we see subjectively on bed, at the bedside. Maybe it is something to see on fees or floral, but the point is, that black box is most of the situation here. And all we're doing is putting something into it and coming out with something. And we have to infer based on our knowledge of uh, swallowing physiology and neurophysiology and neuroanatomy, what happened in that, in that um, loop. That's ultimately our job. Yeah. And I think what's important is this is where you really have to consider where the damage is done in the nervous system, right? So we say it's it's the job of the central pattern generator, but we have to remember that the central pattern generator is modulated by a lot of um, 
it gets modulated by the cortex. It gets modulated by the sensory information. So there's a the Saturn the central pattern generator can get, for lack of a better term, like fucked up in a lot of different directions. Yeah, yeah. Right? No, it's basically it's it's the middle of it's the middle of uh, the ultimate pattern, but we can modify it because we can do a Mendelssohn, we can do an Epiphyll, we can do a superglottic swallow. It does need that information before, but we would not be able to modify. We wouldn't be able to go from a walk to a run to a crazy, a stanky leg or whatever, um, because we wouldn't be able to modify the central pattern generator. And in fact, that's what makes us able to go from uh, amniotic fluid to a nipple to a puree, to something, to, you know, a Cheerio as we develop just to get to a normal adult pattern. Um, yeah. It's the fact that our central pattern generator gets new experiences and it gets to keep layering on these new motor programs so we can, in one meal, go from a strawberry to a spoonful of ice cream to a sip of um, coffee and yeah. not have to go, oh, let me think about which muscles I need to pull out. We just go from one thing to the other, which is why the hallmark of dysphagia is, in fact, the inability to go between a wide variety of bolus types and modes of delivery without significant residue or aspiration because those motor plans don't seem to be modulating as the bolus type or the swallowing circumstance changes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it gives you insight as to where do you, where do you challenge and where do you rehab? Right. So I, there's a, there was a quote that, um, it was an it was a quote I read in an article that Nadine Connor published in 1991 in a speech article. It was an article in speech, and what they talked about was the means by which the nervous system is able to come to a given end product are so numerous and they're so opaque that pure just descriptive analyses of output. So I take that as like. That's what we do as clinicians, right? We're doing descriptive analyses of output, timing um, analyses, or we do pen asp, or we do, you know, we do all these things as a descriptive output, but there's so many different ways that can get to that end product, right? So to say that the deficit is in timing is sort of not accurate, right? It's like, well, what caused that deficit in timing? Because there's a lot of different reasons that it could. Is, there, is it that the sensory information going to the brainstem was not sufficient? Is it that the cortex was supposed to modulate and it didn't? Um, is it literally just there's some sort of damage within the brainstem that the central pattern generator neurons are now damaged and they can't do their job, right? Is it the actual muscles themselves? Like there's, there's so many different ways to come to the same end product that we that we see we only see the end product right mm -hmm. um that it it we really have to take into into consideration the etiology of why this person has dysphagia in the first place to put two and two together to say well they had a cortical stroke <laughs> so i have an idea about where the deficit is right i mm -hmm. mean these things aren't they're not vague. I mean, we oftentimes we know, sometimes we don't know, sometimes it's not very clear. Um, but in those circumstances, we can take advantage of a sensory system that is likely the, the sensory information going to the brainstem is likely intact. Now, how that sensory information is being received may be a different question. Right. Right. So I think the point is, is that we have to probe to figure out what is what is the patient good at? Yeah. What is intact? And how do we take advantage of that? And how do we use that to our advantage to compensate for a deficit that does exist? I wanted to say something about what you're talking about, which is uh, what you're talking about is we have redundancy, redundancy built in. If, if you guys are interested, go back to the LVC conversation mm -hmm. where we talk about how many fail safes there are to make sure that the larynx closes in some way that you can still be functional and a couple of things don't work. And I think you're right. So I, I think it is actually called uncontrolled manifold, which is the, the nervous system's capacity to do things in so many different ways that if one motor program is gone, you can still do something. Um, and these redundancies and plasticity, the ability to change are built in so we don't perish because something isn't exactly the same, the right 
way. So what if it was the case that if we learn to walk on concrete, that's the only thing we could ever walk on? That would mean you couldn't walk over grass, you couldn't walk over carpet, you couldn't walk over a laminate, you couldn't walk over anything because you only learn to walk over concrete. Well, your body changes, your locomotion, your capacity to move changes because we can modulate really quickly, we learn very quickly. So um, that brings me to this point of sort of, we're gonna have to round this out. I think we're gonna have to do part one and part two for these general concepts. But there's something you said that made me think of top-down versus bottom-up and giving patients experiences, because I think we need to talk about what does any of this mean for rehab decisions. Sure. So we've talked a lot about bottom-up, meaning information coming from the periphery to tell our nervous system what's going on so we can then move forward and make a motor plan that makes sense. We talked about the fact that you give somebody a thin liquid or you give them a cookie, and the plan changes because the bolus is different, right? So that's the way swallowing usually works. It usually works with a bottom-up phenomenon. And that means that the periphery, it's PNS to CNS is what bottom-up means. It goes from the periphery, then goes up, up or across to the central nervous system. Top-down is different. So that's basically me saying swallow now or swallow this way. And so you can't, because swallowing requires a sensory stimulus, you never get rid of bottom-up but it doesn't mean that bottom up is the primary driver. So here's what I mean. If you have, or if you're asked somebody to take 20 different sips of a five ml thin liquid from a cup and you're doing it exactly the same way, then the bottom up is always gonna be the same. But if you say on swallow 10, I want you to swallow really hard. Now you have an intersection between bottom up and top down, meaning they're intersecting. You still have the, the cup sip of the thin liquid, but you have this top-down or cortex to brainstem command to do it differently. In swallowing rehab, we often utilize one or the other. So we have to have a bottom-up if they're swallowing something. You have to have the periphery have a sensory stimulus, which we call a bolus, to do something with, even if it's just their saliva. But with rehab, what we try to do is we try to layer on more information, which is the top down. It's like, don't forget to hold it before you swallow. We don't want it slipping back. That is our cortical, um, um, that's us engaging the cortex to say, the bottom up is no longer enough like it is with most of, most of us. Usually we just go to eat something and we just go through the, the plate of food without thinking about it. We don't have somebody telling us, now do this and do that. So the top-down can really put on a nice layer of additional helpful information or not. Sometimes yep. what happens is we then confuse the system's capacity to figure out the bottom-up on its own. And what we find is that in rehab, we don't always know which works best for swallowing. We don't always know if layering on these volitional cortical commands onto these sort of natural sensory information is helpful or hurtful. My assumption is that at the beginning, you need that information. A lot of rehab disciplines do this. If you go to reach for something and you're spastic and you just knock it off the table, sometimes you need a clinician or a therapist to say, all right, here's what happened. Let's do it this way next time. But there's a point where that extrinsic or external feedback or commands might interfere with the body's natural process of using those motor commands that are as natural as possible, which are sensory based. And sometimes we don't know when we're interfering with the body's ability to use those motor commands it's always used. What do you think? There's actually, so all really good points. I think that we as clinicians, we dominate our therapy sessions by trying to take advantage of that cortical overdrive. Um, and I think we, do not even closely take advantage of enough of uh, manipulating the sensory input or heightening the sensory input to allow. So here's what we know about the NTS and the central pattern generators is that sensory information that's being fed in from the periphery matters a lot more than the cortical modulation. We yes. know that. Yes. So why are we not taking advantage of that more in therapy? Why are when that's deficit, why are we not saying, let's give as much sensory information as possible so that the network can re reconfigure itself, right? Think about it in terms of walking, right? So when somebody has a stroke, 
and they need practice walking, they don't, the therapist doesn't say, okay, you're really good at a flat surface without any obstacles. We're going to go outside and we're going to walk around in a rocky garden. I want you to put your heel down and then you're going to step. And then when you see this, you're going to do that. And then you're going to do this. And then you're going to do that. It's too much, right? The the, The patient just needs to feel that sensory information of what it feels like and just get as much experience as possible. Feed the system, feed the system, sensory, 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 sensory. See what it feels like. Oh, I fell. Oh, okay. Well, this is what it felt like when I fell. So that it can say, you know, it, it gets into error-based learning. It's like, oh, well, that was a failure. Now I, I need to do something differently. But how can it learn without that sensory information? So I think when I hear people that are NPO, I all I can hear is that you're putting this person in a wheelchair and saying, you're not allowed to walk because you're high risk of falling. And you've completely taken away the sensory information that they need to rehabilitate their swallow. And I don't care how many Masakos and Mendelssohn's that you do with that patient. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's like saying you you don't have the opportunity to walk because you don't know how to walk. Except you need to walk to learn how to walk. But yeah. you're not going to walk. <laughs> so I, everything you said rings true in terms of in order to... In order for the central pattern generator, which you never thought of before, remember this, we just talked about the central pattern generator being something that happened in the background. You started swallowing the, for the first time around your 10th week of gestation and that you have been working on making all these new motor, motor plans in the background when you didn't know you had to do it. No one can tell you how to sequence your pharynx and your larynx and your uis and your this it's just not pot we do not have the capacity to isolate just this part of that part the central pattern generator has to pull it together it's like facial recognition babies i mean yeah you just have to keep increasing the complexity of the bolus it's just the sensory it's like what do they call those hierarchies when you um in therapy it's like um I, I, there's like a name for it or whatever, but like, that's all you're doing with a baby is you're just, it's just a hierarchy of increasing the sensory complexity. Right. You know, right. and it's, it has nothing, you're not telling a baby how to chew a Cheeto. Yeah. You just gotta fucking let it fly. See what yeah, happens. Give, give them a Cheeto and see what happens. If they gag too much, you go, oh, maybe we're not Cheeto ready. Yeah. Yeah. No, but and they, they you, just have to, you have to put something into the- that. You don't take it away. Yeah. You say, you gotta, you're going to do it again. Yeah. And they're going to do it differently the second time and the third time and the fourth time. And that's what we have to do with patients is we have to allow them. When I give, when I first gave, I knew that there was a risk. He's never had it before. He literally has never put this in his mouth before. He doesn't know what to do, but I had to trust that he would, that the sensory experience that he was going to get in the learning process was worth that risk. Right. You said when you gave Hudson a what? I didn't Chino hear you. Or something. Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. And the thing is that we know instinctively to start with the softer things because we've looked at them and see, okay, this child has two rice grains coming out the bottom because they only have two teeth. So I'm not going to give them a piece of steak. And no one had to tell you, don't be giving that baby no no bacon. You just know. So it's the same idea, which is we're, we're supposed to take the physiology that we've assessed at the bedside, the non-swallow tasks and the swallow tasks, put them together and decide what the first experiences should be, knowing we're going to heighten that increase in difficulty gradually with the understanding the system needs these experiences so the central pattern generator so the brain can say oh right i wired these before um and i'm definitely able to remember that so that i can try it again it might not be perfect in the beginning but we've got to give them the chance yep and i i mean we have to wrap this up but i just want to end with if you made it this far in the podcast i want you to think about your whole caseload and think about all of the patients that are getting muscle exercises. Ooh, I was going to say the same thing. Non-swallow tasks. Non-swallow tasks. Is that what I should be doing? Is that in the pathway? Is it really the muscle that's the problem? Or is it the network leading to the muscle that just Mm -hmm. needs more information in order to be executed properly? 
Right. And so we're going to end because we only have a couple more minutes. But I would also argue that we need to consider this idea that non-swallow tasks are going to transfer to swallow tasks. If that was the case, then coughing and sneezing and gagging would then change swallowing because they use overlapping central pattern generators and structures and they just don't. People used to gag patients all the time or stroke certain things to try to elicit a swallow and think that that would be the thing that would work. So I think when we pick up with the part two about the basics, we need to pick up on the idea, now that we've gone through these concepts, about non-swallow tasks and to take your point about the muscle, that's like basically saying, I'm just going to work on the bulb on this lamp over and over and just keep putting new bulbs in when you can see that it's not working. You've put in 10 different bulbs and nothing is lighting up, but let's just work on strengthening that bulb. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, boy, that happened really fast and we'll pick up next time. How's that? Sounds good. I can talk about this all day. All right. Cool. See ya. Okay. Bye.